I know it's an incredible story. I of all people know this. And you won't believe me. No, not at first. But I'm going to tell you the whole thing. Then you will believe. Because you must believe the story of the Howling Man. The Germany of that time was a land of valleys and mountains and swift, dark rivers. A green and fertile land, where everything grew tall and straight out of the earth. There was no other country like it. Stepping across the border from Belgium, where the rain-caped, stashed guards saluted, grinning like operetta soldiers, you entered a different world entirely. Here, the grass became as rich and smooth as velvet. Deep, thick woods appeared. The air itself, which had been heavy with the French perfume of wines and saucers, changed. The clean, fresh smell of lakes, pines and boulders came into your lungs. You stood a moment. Then, at the border, watching the circling hawks above and wondering, a little fearfully, how such a thing could happen. In less than a minute you had passed from a musty ancient room through an invisible door into a kingdom of winds and light. Unbelievable. But there, at your heels, clearly in view, is Belgium. Like all the rest of Europe, a faded tapestry from some forgotten mansion. In that time, before I had heard of St. Wolfrin's, of the wretch who clawed the stones of a locked cell, wailing in the midnight hours, or the daft brothers and their mad abbot. I had strong legs and a mind on its last search, and I preferred to be alone. A while and I'll come back to this spot. We will ride and feel the sickness, fall, and hover on the edge of death together. But I'm not a writer, only one who loves wild, unhousebroken words. I must have a real beginning. Paris beckoned in my youth. I heeded, for the reason most young men just out of college heed, although they'd never admit it, to lie with mysterious, beautiful women. A solid, traditional upbringing among the corseted ruins of Boston had succeeded, as such upbringings generally do, in honing the edge to a keen edge. My nightly dreams of beaded bagnios and dusky writhing whores, skilled beyond imagination, reached finally the unbearable stage beyond which lies either madness or respectability. Fancying neither, I managed to convince my parents that a year abroad would add exactly the right amount of seasoning to my maturity like a dash of curry in an otherwise bland, if not altogether tasteless, chowder. I'm afraid that father caught the hot glint in my eye, but he was kind, describing in detail and with immense effect the hideous consequences of profligacy, telling of men he knew who'd gone to Europe innocently and fallen into dissolutions so profound they'd not been heard of since. 
He begged me at all times to remember that I was an Ellington and turned me loose. Paris, of course, was enchanting and terrifying, as a jungle must be to a zoo-born monkey. Out of respect to the honoured dead and dad, I did a quick trot through the Tilleries, the Louvre, and down the Champs-Élysées to the Arc de Triomphe. Then, with the fall of night, I cannoned off to Montmartre and Rue Pigalle, embarking on the grand adventure. Synoptically, it did not prove to be so grand as I'd imagined, nor was it, after the fourth week, so terribly adventurous. Still, important to what followed, for what followed doubtless wouldn't have been but for the sweet, complacent girls. Boston Straight and Narrows don't, I fear, prepare one, except psychologically, for the wildlife. My health broke in due course, and as my thirst had been well and truly slaked, I was not awfully discontent to sink back into the complentative cocoon to which I was apparently more suited. A bed for a month I lay, in celibate silence and almost total inactivity. Then, no doubt as a final gesture of rebellion, I got my idea. Got? Or had my concentrated sins received it, like a signal from a falling tower? And I made my strange, un-Ellingtonian decision. I would explore Europe, but not as a tourist, safe and fat in his fat, safe bus, insulated against the beauty and the ugliness of changing cultures by a pane of glass and a room at the English-speaking hotel. No. I would go like an unprotected wind, a seven-league booted leaf, a nestless bird, and I would see this dark strange land with the vision of a boy on the last legs of his dreams. I would go by bicycle, poor and lonely and questing, as poor and lonely and questing anyway, as one can be with a hundred thousand in the bank and a partnership in Ellington, Carruthers and Blake waiting. So it was. New England blood and muscles wilted on that first day's pumping, but New England spirit toughened as the miles dropped back, like an ant crawling over a once lovely, now decayed and somewhat seedy duchess. I rode over the body of Europe. I dined at restaurants where boars' heads hung, all vicious, tusked and blind. I slept at country inns and breathed the musty age. And sometimes girls came to the door, and knocked, and asked if I had everything I needed. Well. And they were better than the girls in Paris, though I can't imagine why. No matter. Out of France I pedalled into Belgium, out and to the place of cows and forests, mountains, brooks and laughing people. Germany. I've rhapsodised on purpose for I feel it's quite important to remember how completely paradisical the land was then at that time. I looked odd standing there. The border guard asked what was loose with me. I answered nothing, grateful for the German and the French Miss Finch had drummed into me, and set off along the smallest, darkest path. It serpentined through forests, cities, towns, 
villagers, and always I followed its least likely appendages. Unreasonably, I pedalled as if towards a destination, into the Moselle Valley country, up into the desolate hills of Emerald. By a ferry fallen to desertude, the reptile drew me through a bosky wood. The trees closed in at once. I drank the fragrant air and pumped, and kept on pumping, but a heat began to grow inside my body. My head began to ache. I felt weak. Two more miles and I was obliged to stop, for perspiration filled my skin. You know the signs of pneumonia, a sapping of the strength, a trembling, flashes of heat and cold, visions. I lay in the bed of damp leaves for a time, then forced myself onto the bicycle and rode for what seemed an endless time. At last a village came into view, a 13th century village, grey and narrow streeted, cobbled to the hidden storefronts. A number of old people in peasant costumes looked up as I bumped along, and I recall one ancient, tallow-coloured fellow, nothing more, only the weakness, like acid, burning off my nerves and muscles, and an intervening blackness to pillow my fall. I awoke to the smells of urine and hay. The fever had passed, but my arms and legs lay heavy as logs. My head throbbed horribly, and there was an empty shoveled-out hole inside my stomach somewhere. For a long while I did not move or open my eyes. Breathing was a major effort, but consciousness came, eventually. I was in a tiny room. The walls and ceiling were of rough grey stone. The single glassless window was arch-shaped. The floor was uncombed dirt. My bed was not a bed at all, but a blanket thrown across a disorderly pile of crinkly straw. Beside me, a cruel table. Upon it, a pitcher. Beneath it, a bucket. Next to the table, a stool, and seated there, asleep, his tonsured head a dangle from an Everest of robe, a monk. I must have groaned, for the shorn pate bobbed up precipitately. Two silver trails gleamed down the corners of the suddenly exposed mouth, which drooped into a frown. The slumberous eyes blinked. It is God's infinite mercy sighed the gnome-like little man. You have recovered. Not as yet, I told him. Unsuccessfully, I tried to remember what had happened. Then I asked questions. I am Brother Christophorus. This is the Abbey of St. Wolfrens. The Burgermeister of Schwartoff, Herr Barth, brought you to us nine days ago. Father Jerome said that you would die, and he sent me to watch for I have never seen a man die, and Father Jerome holds that it is beneficial for a brother to have seen a man die. But now I suppose that you will not die. He shook his head ruefully. Your disappointment, I said, cuts me to the quick. 
However, don't abandon hope. The way I feel now, it's touch and go. No, said Brother Christopherus sadly. You will get well. It will take time, but you will get well. Such ingratitude, and after all you've done, how can I express my apologies? He blinked again. With the innocence of a child, he said, I beg your pardon? Nothing. I grumbled about blankets, a fire, some food to eat, and then slipped back into a well of sleep. A fevered dream of forests full of giant two-headed beasts came. Then the sound of screaming. I awoke. The scream shrilled on, klaxon loud, high, cutting, like a cry for help. What is that sound? I asked. The monk smiled. Sound? I hear no sound, he said. It stopped. I nodded. Dreaming, probably. I'll hear a good deal more before I'm through. I shouldn't have left Paris in such a poor condition. No, he said. You shouldn't have left Paris. Kindly now, resigned to my recovery, Brother Christophorus became attentive to a fault. Nurse-like, he spooned thick soups into me, applied compressors, chanted soothing prayers, and emptied the bucket out of the window. Time passed slowly. As I fought the sickness, the dreams grew less vivid, but the night cries did not diminish. They were as full of terror and loneliness as before, strong, real in my ears. I tried to shut them out, but they would not be shut out. Still, how could they be strong and real except in my vanishing delirium? Brother Christophorus did not hear them. I watched him closely when the sunlight faded to the grey of dusk and the screams began. But he was deaf to them, if they existed. If they existed. Be still, my son. It is the fever that makes you hear these noises. That is quite natural. Is that not quite natural? Sleep. But the fever is gone. I'm sitting up now. Listen, do you mean to tell me you don't hear that? I hear only you, my son. The screams that fourteenth night continued until dawn. They were totally unlike any sounds in my experience. Impossible to believe they could be uttered and sustained by a human, yet they did not seem to be animal. I listened there in the gloom, my hands balled into fists, and knew suddenly that one of two things must be true. Either someone or something was making these ghastly sounds, and Brother Christophorus was lying, or I was going mad, hearing voices mad, climbing walls and frothing mad, I'd have to find the answer that I knew, and by myself. I listened with a new ear to the howls, razoring under the door, they rose to operatic pitch, subsided, resumed, like the cries of a surly hysterical child. To test their reality, I hummed beneath my breath. I covered my head with blanketing, scratched at the straw, coughed, 
no difference. The quality of substance, of existence, was there. I tried then to localize the screams, and on the fifteenth night felt sure that they were coming from a spot not far along the hall. The sounds that maniacs hear seem quite real to them, I know, I know. The monk was by my side. He had not left it from the start. Keeping steady vigil, he joined his tremulous soprano to the distant chants, and prayed excessively, but nothing could tempt him away. The food we ate was brought to us, as were all other needs. I'd see the abbot, Father Jerome, once I was recovered. Meanwhile, I'm feeling better, brother. Perhaps you'd care to show me about the grounds. I've seen nothing of St. Wolfran's except this little room. There is only this little room multiplied. Ours is a rigorous order. The Franciscans now, they permit themselves aesthetic pleasure. We do not. It is for us a luxury. We have a single, most unusual job. There is nothing to see. But surely the Abbey is very old. Yes, that's true. What is it you don't want me to see? What are you afraid of, brother? Mr. Ellington, I do not have the authority to grant your request. When you are well enough to leave, Father Jerome will no doubt be happy to accommodate you. Will he also be happy to explain the screams I've heard each night since I've been here? Rest, my son. Rest. The unholy hackle-raising shriek burst loose and bounded off the hard stone walls. Brother Christophorus crossed himself apropos of nothing and sat like an ancient Indian on the weary stool. I knew he liked me, especially perhaps. We'd got along quite well in all our talks. But this, verboten. I closed my eyes. I counted to three hundred. I opened my eyes. The good monk was asleep. I blasphemed softly, but he did not stare. So I swung my legs over the side of the straw bed and made my way across the dirt floor to the heavy wooden door. I rested there a time in the candleless dark, listening to the howls. Then, with Bostonian discretion, raised the bolt. The rusted hinges creaked, but Brother Christophorus was deep in the celestial marble, his head drooped low upon his chest. Panting, weak as a landlocked fish, I stumbled out into the corridor. The screams became impossibly loud. I put my hands to my ears instinctively and wondered how anyone could sleep with such a furore going on. It was a furore. In my mind, no. Real. The monastery shook with these shrill cries. You could feel their realness with your teeth. I passed the brother's cell and listened, then another. Then I paused. A thick door made of oak or pine was locked before me. Behind it were the screams. A chill went through me on the edge of those unutterable shrieks of hopeless, helpless anguish. 
and for a moment I considered turning back. Not to my room, not to my bed of straw, but back into the open world. But duty held me. I took a breath and walked up the narrow bar-crossed window and looked in. A man was in the cell, on all fours, circling like a beast, his head thrown back, a man. The moonlight showed his face. It cannot be described, not at least by me. A man past death might look like this, a victim of the inquisition rack, the stake, the pincers, not a human in the third decade of the 20th century, surely. I had never seen such suffering within two eyes, such lost, mad suffering. Naked, he crawled about the dirt, cried, leapt up to his feet, and clawed the hard stone walls in fury. Then he saw me. The screaming ceased. He huddled, blinking in the corner of his cell, and then, as though unsure of what he saw, he walked right to the door. In German, hissing, Who are you? David Ellington, I said. Are you locked in? Why have they locked you in? He shook his head. Be still, be still. You are not German. No, I told him how I came to be at St. Wolfran's. Ah. Trembling, his horny fingers closing on the bars, the naked man said, Listen to me, we only have moments. They are mad. You hear? All mad. I was in the village, lying with my woman, when their crazy abbot burst into the house and hit me with his heavy cross. I woke up here. They flogged me. I asked for food, they would not give it to me. They took my clothes. They threw me in this filthy room. They locked the door. Why? Why? He moaned. I wish I knew. That's been the worst of it. Five years imprisoned, beaten, tortured, starved, and not given a reason. Not a word to guess from, Mr. Ellington. I have sinned, but who has not? With my woman, quietly, alone with my woman, my love. And this god-drunk lunatic Jerome cannot stand it. Help me! His breath splashed on my face. I took a backward step and tried to think. I couldn't quite believe that in this century a thing so frightening could happen. Yet the abbey was secluded, above the world, timeless. What could not transpire here secretly? I'll speak to the abbot. No, I tell you he's the maddest of them all. Say nothing to him. Then how can I help you? He pressed his mouth against the bars. In one way only. Around Jerome's neck there is a key. It fits this lock. If... Mr. Ellington... I turned and faced a fierce El Greco painting of a man. White-bearded, prow-nosed, regal as an emperor beneath the grey-peaked robe, he came out of the darkness. 
Mr. Ellington, I did not know that you were well enough to walk. Come with me, please. The naked man began to weep hysterically. I felt a grip of steel about my arm. Through corridors, past snore-filled cells, the echoes of the weeping dying, we continued to a room. I must ask you to leave St. Wolfrin's, the abbot said. We lack the proper facilities for care of the ill. Arrangements will be made in Schwarzhof. One moment, I said. While it's probably true that Brother Christophorus' ministration saved my life, and certainly true that I owe you all a debt of gratitude, I've got to ask for an explanation of that man in the cell. What man? the abbot said softly. The one we just left? The one who screamed all night long every night? No man has been screaming, Mr. Ellington. Feeling suddenly very weak, I sat down and rested a few breaths worth. Then I said, Father Jerome, you are he? I am not necessarily an irreligious person, but neither could I be considered particularly religious. I know nothing of monasteries, what is permitted, what isn't. But I seriously doubt that you have the authority to imprison a man against his will. That is quite true. We have no such authority. Then why have you done so? The abbot looked at me steadily. In a firm, inflexible voice, he said, No man has been imprisoned at St. Wolfram's. He claims otherwise. Who claims otherwise? The man in the cell at the end of the corridor. There is no man in the cell at the end of the corridor. I was talking with him. You were talking with no man. The conviction in his voice shocked me into momentary silence. I gripped the arms of the chair. You are ill, Mr. Ellington, the bearded holy man said. You have suffered from delirium. You have heard and seen things which do not exist. That's true, I said, but the man in the cell, whose voice I can hear now, is not one of those things. The abbot shrugged. Dreams can seem very real, my son. I glanced at the leather thong about his turkey gobbler neck, all but hidden beneath the beard. Honest men make unconvincing liars, I lied convincingly. Brother Christophorus has a way of looking at the floor whenever he denies the cries in the night. You look at me, but your voice loses its command. I can't imagine why, but you are both very intent upon keeping me away from the truth. Which is not only poor Christianity, but poor psychology. For now I am quite curious indeed. You might as well tell me, Father. I'll find out eventually. What do you mean? Only that. I'm sure the police will be interested to hear of a man imprisoned at the Abbey. I tell you, there is no man. Very well, let's forget the matter. Mr. Ellington, the abbot put his hands behind him. The person in the cell is, uh, one of the brothers. 
yes, he is subject to seizures, fits, you know, fits. At these times, he becomes intractable, violent, dangerous. We're obliged to lock him in his cell, which you can surely understand. I understand, I said, that you're still lying to me. If the answer were as simple as that, you'd not have gone through the elaborate business of pretending I was delirious. There'd have been no need. There's something more to it, but I can wait. Shall we go on to Schwarzhoff? Father Jerome tugged his beard viciously, as if it were some feathered demon came to taunt him. Would you truly go to the police? he asked. Would you? I said, in my position. He considered that for a long time, tugging the beard, nodding the proud head, and the screams went on, so distant, so real. I thought of the naked man, clawing in his filth. Well, father? Mr. Ellington, I see that I shall have to be honest with you, which is a great pity, he said. Had I followed my original instinct and refused to allow you in the Abbey to begin with. But I had no choice. You were near death. No physician was available. You would have perished. Still, perhaps that would have been better. My recovery seems to have disappointed a lot of people, I commented. I assure you it was inadvertent. The old man took no notice of this remark, stuffing his mandarin hands into the sleeves of his robe. He spoke with great deliberation. When I said there was no man in the cell at the end of the corridor, I was telling the truth. Sit down, sir, please, now. He closed his eyes. There is much to the story, much that you will not understand or believe. You are sophisticated, or feel that you are. You regard our life here, no doubt, as primitive. In fact, I... In fact, you do. I know the current theories. Monks are misfits, neurotics, sexual frustrates, and aberrants. They retreat from the world because they cannot cope with the world, etc. You are surprised I know these things. My son, I was told by the one who began the theories. He raised his head upward, revealing more of the leather thong. Five years ago, Mr. Ellington, there were no screens at St. Wolfram's. This was an undistinguished little abbey in the wild black mountain region, and its inmates' job was, quite simply, to serve God, to save what souls they could by constant prayer. At that time, not very long after the Great War, the world was in chaos. Schwarzhof was not the happy village you see now. It was, my son, a resort for the sinful, a hive of vice and corruption, a pit for the unwary and the weary also if they had not the strength. A godless place. Forsaken fornicators paraded the streets. Gambling was done, robbery and murder, drunkenness, and evil so profound I cannot put them into words. In all the universe you could not have found a fouler pest hole, Mr. Ellington. 
the abbot and the brothers at St. Wolfram succumbed for years to Schwartzhoff, I regret to say. Good men, lovers of God, chaste good men came here and fought but could not win against the black temptations. Finally, it was decided that the abbey should be closed. I heard of this and argued. Is that not surrender, I said? Are we to bow before the strength of evil? Let me try, I beg you. Let me try to amplify the word of God that all in Schwartzhoff shall hear and see their dark transgressions and repent. The old man stood at the window, a trembling shade. His hands were now clutched together in a fervency of remembrance. They asked, he said, if I considered myself more virtuous than my predecessors, that I should hope for success where they had failed. I answered that I did not, but that I had an advantage. I was a convert. Earlier I had walked with evil. I knew its face. My wish was granted for a year, one year only. Rejoicing, Mr. Ellington, I came here and one night, incognito, walked the streets of the village. The smell of evil was strong, too strong, I thought, and I had reveled in the alleys of Morocco. I had seen the dens of Hong Kong, Paris, Spain. The orgies were too wild, the drunkards much too drunk, the profanities a great deal too profane. It was as if the evil of the world had been distilled and centred here, as if a pagan tribal chief in hiding had assembled all his rituals about him. The abbot nodded his head. I thought of Rome in her last days, of Byzantium, of Eden. That was the first of many hints to come. I returned to the abbey and donned my holy robes and went back to Schwartzhoff. I made myself conspicuous, some jeered, some shrank away. A voice cried, Damn your foolish god! And then a hand thrust out from the darkness, touched my shoulder, and I heard, Now, father, are you lost? The abbot brought his tightly clenched hands to his forehead and tapped his forehead. Mr. Ellington, I have some poor wine here. Please have some. I drank gratefully. Then the priest continued. I faced a man of average appearance, so average indeed that I felt I knew then. No, I told him, but you are lost. He laughed a foul laugh. Are we not all, father? Then he said a most peculiar thing. He said his wife was dying and begged me to give her extreme unction. Please, he said, in God's sweet name. I was confused. We hurried to his house. A woman lay upon a bed, her body nude. It is a different extreme unction that I have in mind, he whispered laughing. It is the only kind, dear father, that she understands. No other will have her. Pity, pity on the poor soul lying there in all her suffering. Give her your scepter. And the woman's arms came snaking 
supplicating toward me, round and sensuous and hot. Father Jerome shuddered and paused. The shrieks, I thought, were growing louder from the hall. Enough of that, he said. I was quite sure then. I raised my cross and told the words I learned, and it was over. He screamed, as he's doing now, and fell upon his knees. He had not expected to be recognised, nor should he have been normally. But in my life I had seen him many times, in many guises. I brought him to the abbey, I locked him in the cell. We chant his chains each day, and so, my son, you see why you must not speak of the things you have seen and heard. I shook my head, as if afraid the dream would end, as if reality would suddenly explode upon me. Father Jerome, I said, I haven't the vaguest idea of what you're talking about. Who is the man? Are you such a fool, Mr. Ellington, that you must be told? Yes. Very well, said the abbot. He is Satan, otherwise known as the Dark Angel, Asmodeus, Belial, Ariman, Diabolus, the Devil. I opened my mouth. I see you doubt me. That is bad. Think, Mr. Ellington, of the peace of the world these past five years, of the prosperity, of the happiness. Think of this country, Germany, now. Is there another country like it? Since we caught the devil and locked him up here, there have been no great wars, no overwhelming pestilences. Only the suffering man was meant to endure. Believe what I say, my son, I beg you. Try very hard to believe that the creature you spoke with is Satan himself. Fight your cynicism, for it is born of him. He is the father of cynicism, Mr. Ellington. His plan was to defeat God by implanting doubt in the minds of heaven's subjects. The abbot cleared his throat. Of course, he said, we could never release anyone from St. Wolfram's who had any part of the devil in him. I stared at the old fanatic and thought of him prowling the streets looking for sin, saw him standing outraged at the bold fornicator's bed, wheedling him into an invitation to the abbey, closing that heavy door and locking it, and because of the world's temporary post-war peace, clinging to his fantasy. What greater dream for a holy man than actually capturing the devil. I believe you, I said. Truly? Yes, I hesitated only because it seemed a trifle odd that Satan should have picked a little German village for his home. He moves around, the abbot said. Schwarzhoff attracted him as lovely virgins attract perverts. I see. Do you? My son, do you? Yes, I swear it. As a matter of fact, I thought he looked familiar, but I simply couldn't place him. Are you lying? Father, I'm a Bostonian. And you promise not to mention this to anyone? I promise. Very well, the old man sighed. I suppose, he said, 
that you would not consider joining us as a brother at the Abbey. Believe me, Father, no one could admire the vocation more than I, but I'm not worthy. No, it, it's quite out of the question. However, you have my word that your secret is safe with me. He was very tired. Sound had, in these years, reversed for him. The screams had become silence. The sudden cessation of them noise. The prisoner's quiet talk with me had awakened him from a deep slumber. Now he nodded wearily, and I saw that what I had to do would not be difficult after all. Indeed, no more difficult than fetching the authorities. I walked back to my cell, where Brother Christophorus still slept and lay down. Two hours passed. I rose again and returned to the abbot's quarters. The door was closed but unlocked. I eased it open, timing the creaks of the hinges with the screams of the prisoner. I tiptoed in. Father Jerome lay snoring in his bed. Slowly, cautiously, I lifted out the leather thong and was a bit astounded at my technique. No Ellington had ever burgled, yet a force, not like experience, but like it, ruled my fingers. I found the knot, I worked it loose. The warm iron key slid off into my hand. The abbot stared, then settled, and I made my way into the hall. The prisoner, when he saw me, rushed the bars. He's told you lies, I'm sure of that, he whispered hoarsely. Disregard the filthy madman. Don't stop screaming, I said. What? He saw the key and nodded, and then made his awful sounds. I thought at first the lock had rusted, but I worked the metal slowly, and in time the key turned over. Howling still in a most dreadful way, the man stepped out into the corridor. I felt a momentary fright as his clawed hand reached up and touched my shoulder, but it passed. Come on! We ran insanely to the outer door, across the frosted ground, down toward the village. The night was very black. A terrible aching came into my legs. My throat went dry. I thought my heart would tear loose from its moorings, but I ran on. Wait. Now the heat began. Wait. By a row of chops I fell. My chest was full of pain, my head of fear. I knew the madmen would come swooping from their dark asylum on the hill. I cried out to the naked man. Stop. Help me. Help. You, he laughed once, a high-pitched sound more awful than the screams had been, and then he turned and vanished into the moonless night. I found a door somehow, the pounding brought a rifled burger. Policemen came at last and listened to my story, but of course it was denied by Father Jerome and the brothers of the Abbey. This poor traveller has suffered from the visions of pneumonia. There was no howling man at St. Wolfrin's. No, no, certainly not. Absurd. Now, if Mr. Ellington would care to stay with us, we'd happily... No? Very well. I fear that you will be delirious a while, my son. The things you see will be quite real. 
most real. You'll think, how quaint, that you have loosed the devil on the world and that the war to come. What war? But aren't there always wars? Of course. You'll think that it's your fault. Those old eyes burning condemnation, beak-nosed, bearded head a-tremble, rage in every word. That you have caused the misery and suffering and death, and nights you'll spend awake, unsure, afraid. How foolish. Gnome of God, Christophorus looked terrified and sad. He said to me, when Father Jerome swept furiously out, My son, don't blame yourself. Your weakness was his lever. Doubt unlocked that door. Be comforted, we'll hunt him with our nets. And one day... One day what? I looked up at the Abbey of St. Wolfrens, framed by dawn, and started wondering as I have wondered since ten thousand times if it were true. Pneumonia breeds delirium, delirium breeds visions. Was it possible that I'd imagined all of this? No, not even back in Boston, growing dewlaps, paunches, wrinkles, sacks and money. At Ellington, Carruthers and Brake, could I accept that answer? The monks were mad, I thought, or the howling man was mad, or the whole thing was a joke. I went about my daily work, as every man must do if sane, although he may have seen the dead rise up, or freed a bottled gin, or fought a dragon once quite long ago. But I could not forget. When the pictures of the carpenter from Branaugham Inn began to appear in all the papers, I grew uneasy, for I felt I'd seen this man before. When the carpenter invaded Poland, I was sure. And when the world was plunged into war, and the cities had their entrails blown asunder, and that pleasant land I'd visited became a place of hate and death. I dreamed each night. Each night I dreamed until this week. A card arrived from Germany, a picture of the Moselle Valley is on one side, showing mountains fat with grapes and the dark Moselle wine of these grapes. On the other side of the card is a message it is signed, Brother Christophorus, and reads, and reads, and reads, Rest now, my son, we have him back with us again. <coughs> the Howling Man by Charles Beaumont